Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's June 27th, 1857, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Ariel, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. It was today in history in 1857 that two Irish immigrants in rural Ontario, James Donnelly and Patrick Farrell, came to blows in a row over land which left Farrell dead. Par for the course on the rough and tumble Canadian frontier, you might think. But this fatal encounter was the start of a 20-year feud which culminated in a massacre that one newspaper from the time called a crime which has no parallel in the history of Canada. And this particular batch of Canadian-Irish, the Donnelly family, were from Tipperary, which was the most violent district of Ireland at the time. So there you had Catholics fighting Protestants, obviously, but also each other about who was trading with and talking to Protestants. And the Donnellys were considered Blackfeet, Catholic Irish, who chose not to fight the English or the Protestants. So they were not popular amongst their own people. Yeah, and that Blackfeet thing is how the Donnellys came to be known as the Black Donnellys. And, you know, in many ways, they were kind of typical of Canada's new arrivals. They were quite poor. They were searching for new opportunities. James and Johanna were the two parents of the equation, and they had a young son, James Jr., sometime between 1842 and 1846. And they soon had a second son called Will. We've only got 10 minutes. They had seven sons, one daughter. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Three years later, they welcomed a bouncing baby boy. <laughs> I was going to give you the individual details of each child. <laughs> anyway, but they moved to uh, Biddulph Township, which is just near to London, Ontario. And they set up this sort of homestead in the wilderness. And they were just working the land, but they had no right to it, crucially. And that was really common in North America throughout the 1800s, that farmers would squat on the land and earn the right to use it by improving it through cultivation. And the land's technical owner was a guy called John Grace. But again, this squatting was a really accepted part of life. And he didn't try and eject the Donnellys until 1856. And it seems that this was because Patrick Farrell, another Irish immigrant in the area, had leased a portion of the land that turned out to be occupied by the Donnellys. It eventually went to court and a judge split the land between the two families, but obviously created a lot of bad blood. Yeah, I mean, it was actually a good deal for them. I think Joanna recognised it was a good deal, but James was a kind of all-or-nothing guy. He was angry. He was like, no, we should have had 100% of the land that we've been squatting on. And according to Farrell, Donnelly then began making all sorts of attacks against him, killing his livestock, lighting his barn on fire, and even taking a shot at him, which brings us to today in history. At, of all places, a barn-raising bee, which was kind of like the... The, the party slash construction event you have when everyone hauls on the rope and, and puts the barn up, right? Yeah, and so at this event, both Patrick Farrell and James Donnelly, I guess like the rest of the men there, had been drinking all day. Some words were exchanged between the two of them, I guess because there had been a certain amount of livestock killing and barn burning <laughs> between the two. Uh, and so Farrell was apparently big and much taller and heavier than James. But James was regarded as being very tough. And their 
brawl came to a very quick end when James drove this handspike through Farrell's head, wounding him fatally. I mean, in Donnelly's defence, accounts from the time do suggest that Farrell was the one who first grabbed a handspike, but he didn't know how to use his handspike like James Donnelly. You know, mm. I mean, he then went into hiding for over a year, although it feels like he was hiding from the law rather than the community mm. because he was sometimes spotted doing farm work dressed in Joanna's clothes, like not really the most convincing disguise. I mean, he did finally hand himself in. He was initially sentenced to hang, but it was commuted to seven years in prison. So when he got out in 1865, by this time he had seven hard-as-nails sons aged between 11 and 23. Do you want me to go into oh. who they were exactly? <laughs> yeah, can, we, can you list them again for me? Suffice uh, to oh. say, all of them were handy at picking up gnarly agricultural tools. Yeah. Yeah. They all <laughs> had rep- people. They would they all developed reputations as hard drinking, womanizing wild men. I mean, between this and the barn raising, it's really hard not to think about seven brides for seven brothers. That's what I'm picturing. They've all got red hair and different brightly coloured outfits in my imagination. <laughs> They were all good-looking, apparently, and not actually either as dunderheaded as you might imagine from this kind of rural depiction. One of them wrote poetry. You know, they, they were intelligent entrepreneurs. Um, they started up a stagecoach line in the 1870s. But, I mean, you'll note we're 13 years into the story, and yet uh, that also turned violent, uh, with rival operators of stagecoach gangs um, burning each other's coaches and stables and again with the descendants of the people involved in this original feud. Yeah, well as well as being brighter and more capable than one might have expected they were also incredibly tough and according to a local saying at the time the further one lives down Roman Line Road the tougher one is and the Donnellys live at the end of the road. So they were really <laughs> hard men who gained a reputation as thieves and vandals who would not just do anything within the realms of the law to get their businesses off the ground, but also outside the law as well. Look, things made of straw, gonna catch fire. (laughs) You know, just because the Donnellys live nearby, it's not always them with the map. By this point, their reputation now looms so large that they had become a scapegoat for any kind of disorder. Mm. And in 1879, they became the target of the new town priest, Father John Connolly. And he wanted to take aim at the widespread lawlessness in the town. And he formed the Bidolf Peace Society. The idea of this was that people would take a vow to uphold peace in the town. The Donnellys weren't interested in signing that. And actually, an interesting thing is that the friction between Father Connolly and the Donnellys seems to stem not just from their rowdiness, but also the Donnellys objected to Connolly's passionate anti-Protestant sermon. Mm-hmm. So again, going back to this Blackfeet thing. Yeah, which, I mean, from this perspective, you're like, oh, well, they were talking to Protestants whilst being devout Catholics themselves. That's a slightly more progressive way of dealing with life than all the others who weren't. Um, But at the time, you know, they went every Sunday to church and then heard themselves being preached about Mm. by Father Connolly from the pulpit, being blamed sometimes fairly, yes, for being involved in lots of violence around the town, but sometimes unfairly as well and being scapegoated. And, you know, of all the ironic names... Peace Society, you know, for the group of people that were essentially assembled to disassemble the Donnellys. Yeah, so this whole decades-long, ongoing, multi-generational feud (laughs) comes to this quite brutal end in the early hours of February the 4th in 1880, when a group of these, let's call them what they were, vigilantes, came to the Donnelly family homestead late at night. There was some idea that they were just going there to sort of rough them up, but it didn't turn out that way. 
Father Connolly was not among them, but just before this all happened, he had denounced the family from the pulpit, declaring that evil had fallen among the community, right. and he offered a $500 reward for the detection of the wicked persons. So you can see how he was very much fanning the flames of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 30 members of this vigilance committee met at the Cedar Swamp Schoolhouse where they drank copious amounts of whiskey and then grabbed their weapons. Some of them had firearms, others had farming tools and clubs, and they headed for the Donnelly homestead. Which, by the way, is a sort of cliche, isn't it? From kind of rural Mm. horror. Yeah. You know, the pitchfork Mm. mob. Right. Yeah. But you don't actually really think about what it might be like if someone tore you apart with a pitchfork. It's such a horrendous way to die, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, as you were saying, Arian, at first, there wasn't a specific plan to harm anyone. There was a vague idea that they would forcibly arrest the Donnelly men. But no one was quite sure where that went from there. Some of them then thought they should hang them till they were dead. Some of them thought they should hang them until they confessed to their crimes, which seems like a bit of a pipe dream of what would happen. (laughs) Yeah, right. So as well as the Donnelly household, there was another person there that night, Johnny O'Connor, who was a young farmhand, and he was just sleeping over. But he woke to James Sr. getting dressed and going down to try to deal with the fact that this peace society had uh, Tom Donnelly out the front handcuffed and surrounded by a group of men. And they claimed that they had a warrant for Tom's arrest. Well, Tom demanded to hear this non-existent warrant and then all hell broke loose because, of course, they didn't actually have one. The mob stormed in and soon James, Joanna, Tom and Bridget, who was the Donnelly's niece, were lying bludgeoned and bleeding. And the mob also killed the family dog to silence its barking. But little did the killers know that Johnny O'Connor had hidden under the bed. He was cowering underneath and he was a witness to the whole scene. And when he realised that the departing mob had set the bed on fire, the one he was hiding under, he escaped and fled to a nearby farm. The mob itself then went to the nearby house of the family's second son, William. Which was three miles away, by the way. Yeah. They had time to cool off. Yeah, They were still into some killing when they got there. It's now 2.30am. They started shouting fire from outside and John Donnelly, who's the brother of William but was staying over there, opened the door and two shots rang out. Uh, That sort of pretty much just was the end of him. And thinking that they'd murdered William, the mob was just like, all right, cool, (laughs) let's leave. So that leaves you with five Donnellys dead on this one night in 1880, you know, 33 years after the date we're commemorating today in history when this feud (laughs) began. And Johnny O'Connor had seen the whole thing, but because he was only 12 years old, the court, and there was later a trial, gave no credence to his testimony. Mm. You know, everyone knew each other. No one wanted to say that it was these men. Everyone knew who it was. And despite there being two trials... No one was ever convicted of killing any of the Donnellys that night. And just a word on the fate of the three surviving Donnelly siblings. Unsurprisingly, they moved away. Mm. Uh, (laughs) Jenny, who was the one sister, she moved, but she didn't move very far. She moved to Glencoe, which isn't very far away. Uh, She married a policeman, though, so she maybe felt like she was safe in the area. William became a constable, of all things, Mm. having already been convicted of larceny twice before this massacre. And he spent the rest of his life trying to keep the story in the public eye and get justice for his family's murder. And then Robert, I mean, he was the one who went really off the rails. You know, he remained a petty criminal then got into arson. He had this weird grudge against the Salvation Army and ended up dying in an asylum. All of which goes to show, if you're going to lease some farmland, get a service agreement. (laughs) (laughs) I love a tale with a moral. (laughs) Tomorrow. As the most extensive talent hunt in the history of show business... 
Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors.